This morning's scripture reading comes from select passages of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. This is the word of the Lord. The, The book of Hebrews was written to people whose lives have been shaken. They've been shaken to the core. And it answers the question, how do you face the realities of life without falling apart? How do you face suffering uh, and the, the suffering reality, the troubling reality of life without melting down? And, and, and the writer begins chapter 12. And chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, which we went through last week, he says, he starts to explain what suffering is. And he says, suffering is on one hand, it's, it's, uh, it's training. Um, and, and then he says, suffering is like discipline, the discipline of a father. So you have the suffering, the training aspect of suffering, how it shapes us. You have the discipline aspect of suffering and how that shapes us. And this passage, in some ways, it's the climax of the entire book, definitely the chapter, but the entire book. And the writer says, this is how you face suffering without falling apart, without melting down, without being shaken up. And he says it's, it's three things. One, uh, he shows us what you haven't come to. Two, what you have come to. And three, how do you come to it? What you haven't come to, what you have come to. And lastly, how do you come to it? First, what you haven't come to. Verses 18 to 21, you haven't come to a life that's shakable, that's breakable. One of the keys to understanding this passage is that the phrase... Uh, you, have, you have come to, the word come here, verses 18 and 22, um, it's the same word, it comes from the same verb, it's very important because um, it's not the typical word that you use when you say that you've come to something, okay? Verse 18, it says, you have not come to such and such, right? Verse 22, it says, you have come to this. That word, to approach, to come, it's not the word that's normally used. Here, it's it's a very deep word. It references the spiritual way that we approach life. He says, you haven't approached life this way, but you have come to God. You have come to a worldview. You have come to approach God this way. That's what he's really saying, right? Um, you, it's, it's demonstrated by how you deal with suffering. In other words, kind of like this, when life is unstable, when your life is just broken up, when your life is just shaken up, how do you start to view it? How does that shape your view of life? How does that shape your view of God? Verse 18, he says, you have not come to view God this way. 
And he takes us back to a very famous incident at Mount Sinai, verses 18 to 21. He takes us back to Mount Sinai. Way back, the book of Exodus, those earlier books of the Bible, where the Israelites first encountered God after they escaped, after they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. There, God comes down. He comes down on Mount Sinai, and he gives Moses, he was their mediator at the time, he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law. And the people, they see this fire cloud come down on the mountain. They want to get close. They want to draw near to God, because this is God. They saw the brilliance of God. They saw the fire of God. God rescued them out of slavery, out of the bondage of Egypt. There is the brilliance, the beauty. There is the warmth. There is the power. They're attracted to the beauty. They're attracted to the power. But as they came close, even the law, God says, don't even let them touch the mountain. As they drew near, they realized that the presence of God was not this cozy experience that they expected. It was not this, warmth, this warm experience that they expected. The mountain shook. They were shaken up. God comes down and they could feel him coming down. It was palpable to them. The Hebrew writer, he explains this. He says, it's, it's just to show how devastating it is. He lays this out for them. He says, you have not come to what they came to. Their view of God, their view of the world at that moment was very different than what you've come to. They saw a mountain and it was on fire. They saw a mountain of judgment. It was on fire. It was shaken. It was shaking. There was darkness. There was gloom. There was storm. There was dread. There was a trumpet blast. And everyone trembled. And they heard this overwhelming voice. And it was threatening them, and they couldn't bear to hear it. In other words, when God began to speak, they didn't say, wow, that's so beautiful. I want to hear more. It wasn't like a choir. It wasn't like a chorus. They feared God. They didn't come near the mountain. They didn't want to hear anymore. They sensed the dread. They sensed the power. They sensed the danger. And it says that even Moses trembled in fear. Now, how do you kind of bring that home? I'm going to illustrate for you a couple things. One, um, when you're in high school, everyone's had a crush on somebody in high school. When you have a crush on somebody, when you're attracted to somebody, maybe even now, when you're attracted to somebody, what do you do? You want to just be near them. You want to talk to them. You could, you could be on the phone back when people used the phone, I guess, uh, to talk, right? When you, you could talk on the phone for hours and hours and hours with the person that you have a crush on. You could talk about that person for hours and hours and hours if you have a crush on that person, if you're attracted to that person. That's how it is. But when that person, even after talking to them for hours, when that person, when you actually see that person in person, what happens? There's a shyness. There's a bit of an awkwardness at first. You kind of, some of you, you want to hide, right? You can go back to your early junior high, high school crushes. You want to run away from that person. You get this reaction. There's a, there's a sweatiness in your palms. There's butterflies in your stomach, right? Some of you, you want to just go back home. You want to turn around and go. You, you kind of regret being there. When you go back home after seeing that person, you say, wasn't that person amazing? She was beautiful. You're attracted to that person. You're attracted to their beauty. You're attracted to their warmth. And yet at the same time, it's paradoxical. You don't want to get close to that person. Why? It's not because they're not brilliant. It's because you're overwhelmed by their beauty. 
you're overwhelmed by their brilliance. We're designed in such a way, our human condition, we're designed in such a way that on one hand, we're attracted to things that are beautiful, and yet we can't get too close to those things. We don't want to get too close to those things. We desire to get close to them, but then what happens if you do get close to that person? There's a quaking. There's a shaking. There's an over, a sense of being just being overwhelmed by the warmth and the brilliance. I recall uh, a friend of mine, my freshman year in college uh, in Boston, my friend went to MIT, the valedictorian of his high school. On the first day uh, when all the, fr- the freshmen are gathered, in the auditorium, the president of the university, uh, to all the freshmen, he basically said something like this. He said, uh, everyone here, everyone in this room, this is MIT, right? One of the most uh, intelligent group of people gathered in one room, right? The president says, everyone here graduated at the top of the class in your high school. Everyone here. You're pretty much, you're the best in America. And what that means is that for half of you, you will experience for the first time what it's like to be at the bottom half of your class. In other words, in a class full of valedictorians, somebody here is going to get a B. Somebody here is going to get a C. Somebody is going to fail. In fact, half of you will be at the bottom end of that curve. That's a problem because you've never experienced that in your life. In a classroom like that, they've never experienced what it's like to be at the bottom of the class. And so their entire identity has been built around being at the top. So when you get your first C, what happens? All of a sudden, there's an inadequacy that settles in. There's an awkwardness that settles in. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a room full of people that are foreign to you. There's a shaking. You want to run away. You want to get away. Your inadequacies are exposed, you see. In a room full of type A, educated, hardworking people, you perform well, you try really hard, you're looking for that big break, you're pretty moral, but in the presence of God, everything melts down, everything breaks down, there's a shaking. Even in the presence of other peers, look how average you sometimes feel in your life. There's a shaking. But in the presence of God, the entire, your view, your approach to life, when something like that happens in the face of God, in the presence of God, in his holiness, what this author is saying to us is that in the presence of true holiness, true brilliance, true beauty, your entire worldview shatters. The mountain quaked. The mountain shattered. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, in the presence of God. This is, at that point in time, the greatest orator in history at that moment in time. In the presence of God, what happens? He cries out. He falls to the ground. He says, woe to me. For what? I am a man. This is the greatest orator. His gift was a speech. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Even the best of what we are in the presence of God we shake, we fall apart, we shatter in the wake of the presence of God. In the New Testament, you have Peter, before he becomes an apostle, the the disciple Peter, he meets Jesus for the first time. He meets Jesus Christ for the first time and in the presence of Jesus Christ, what does he say? Does he say, well, yeah, you know, I met him and, you know, I believe God is like a friend. A lot of people say that today in the world. I believe God is like a friend, like an old man who's kind of like your buddy. 
Is that what Peter said? Oh, it's kind of nice to be here in Jesus' presence. That's not what he said because when he realized who Jesus was, he falls and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. This is Jesus Christ. Come in God in the flesh. Peter meets him for the first time and upon realizing who he is, he says, depart from me. I can't even bear to be near you. Depart from me. Get away from me. Just like Isaiah. Just like Moses. Terrified in the presence of God. Everyone shakes. Everyone quakes. Everyone shatters. Everyone's fallen apart. Why? In the presence of an earthly greatness, your flaws get exposed. But in the presence of God, all your flaws, all your finiteness, your vulnerabilities are exposed. The things that you are in deep denial about, and everyone here has things that you are in deep denial about. It's easy in the presence of other people to hide your weaknesses. Maybe you'll get away with those things. But in the presence of God, even the things that you're self-deceived about, the things that you didn't even know about yourself, the evil that you are capable of, the evil that you didn't know that you were capable of, you can't escape it in the presence of God. In the presence of God, you can't help but to fall down. Like Isaiah, like Peter, like Moses, you can't help but fall down on your knees and shake. And even if you don't, because if you build your life on anything else in the world apart from God, you're still going to fall apart because that's how life's designed. For instance, if you build your life on your looks, your whole worldview is going to be revolving around how you look in front of other people, how other people look. So who you want to get close to, who you want to be near, right? What type of person you want to marry. Your entire, your entire worldview is going to revolve around your own looks, And the thing is, that's problematic because eventually you're going to meet somebody who makes you feel ugly. If you build your life on having a perfect family, you're always going to encounter another family. This is just from an earthly perspective. You're going to meet, you're always going to meet another family that's going to look more put together than you. You thought you built a good career. You've been really careful planning your steps in your career. And then you encounter somebody who just leapfrogs over you. You build your, your life around your wealth And then all it takes is a small economic recession. You know what an economic recession is? By definition, all it is is two quarters of negative growth in the GDP, the the, the country's economy. That's all it is, two quarters. That's all it takes to correct your view of how vulnerable you really are in the world. Life is designed to shatter your weaknesses. That's how life is designed. I'm trying to speak to you as a brother, as a friend who's lived a little bit okay? Life is designed to shatter your vulnerabilities. You build your life on anything else in the world, you're going to end up falling apart, shattering, quaking, shaking. You can't stand. You can't even hide. Even Moses, the great Moses, the reason why the author uses Moses is because he is the culmination of the law. The entire Old Testament is built on the law of Moses. And he says, even Moses said, I am terrified. Then the author says, but not you, you see. That's the bad news. But the good news is you haven't come to that. That's what he says. You have not come to that. So what have we come to? That's the second point. In the second paragraph, the writer, he points to another view of life, another way of viewing life. He says, you have not come to that, right? Verse 18. Then he starts to list 
amazing things about what you actually have come to. Amazing things that are the opposite of what is listed in the first paragraph. In other words, he says a Christian has an entirely new approach to life, an entirely new way of viewing God with an entirely new identity built on the foundation that is God. He says you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have not come to Mount Sinai, in other words, you've come to Mount Zion, Remember, the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. You've come to the city of the living God. The entire Bible begins in a garden and ends at the end of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. It ends in a city, begins in a garden in Genesis chapter 1, ends in a city in Revelation chapter 22. But between this garden and this city, you have man trying to build on his own. He's trying to build his own city. Beginning in Genesis, you have people trying to build their own life without God. They, want to make, they say, let's make a name for ourselves. They call that the Tower of Babel. Much later on, in the, in the area of the minor prophets in the Bible, you have this place in Haggai. We're going to go into Haggai one of these days. It's only a two-chapter book. In Haggai, God says, you know, my house... The temple remains in ruins while each of you are busy with building your own houses. See, he says, how can you do this to me? My house is in ruins, and yet you're more concerned about paneling on your own homes. That's what he says. But God is building his own city, and he's laying his own foundations, and he invites us to dwell in his presence. But what are we doing? He says, you're neglecting me. My place remains in ruins. You're ignoring me. You're rejecting me. You're neglecting me. God is establishing this new city based on his character, his own character. It's not Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that latter part of the word Jerusalem is Salem. In Hebrew, it's the word shalom. Shalom means peace, but it's actually more than the word peace. You take any kind of peace that you can have in your life and it's captured in that word shalom. Financial security, right? physical rest, you know, physical indefensibilities. You're completely, you're completely secure, right? completely uh, uh, held with defense. You've got perfect health. He says all those things relationally there's complete intimacy in your life you take all those things wrap them up into one place and he says that is shalom he says that is shalom my place is a city of peace the city of god is a city of peace the new jerusalem and and he says god is establishing this city based on his character of peace based on his justice perfect justice perfect joy but the writer and the writer says you know we have been pursuing power on our own we are pursuing wealth on our own. And that results in a society that's filled with oppression, filled with disorder, filled with just injustice and restlessness. And yet the writer here says, but you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly shalom. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come, basically what he's saying is the church is this heavenly Jerusalem has established a colony on earth where you can taste just a glimpse of what it's like to be in God's presence. It's not perfect. It's actually very imperfect. 
The church is an imperfect colony of the heavenly city. You know what a colony is, right? We just celebrated Thanksgiving. If you were a child, you grew up. Uh, this is not the, the Howard Zinn version of, of Thanksgiving, but uh, if you've read Howard Zinn, but, but if you've read the childish junior high version of Thanksgiving, you have these people who left one country, right, an empire. They sailed to the new world, and they established a colony there, right? But when they established that colony, how did they live? What laws did they follow? Because it's a new world. They followed, as a colony of the old world, they followed the old traditions. They followed the old laws. They, applied, they took those laws and applied them in this new world. And the author is basically saying, you, the church, are a colony of heaven here on earth. When those people in the new world landed, it was not a perfect society. It was not even a perfect living situation. It was actually a dreadful living situation. They had to fight for survival. He said, this is an imperfect glimpse, just a taste. You know, we sit there and we complain about the church all the time. Oh, it's so corrupt and it's, uh, people are always fighting each other. You know why? It wasn't designed to be perfect. It wasn't designed to be perfect. It's an imperfect glimpse. It's supposed to make you not hate or distance yourself from God, but long for heaven more. It's supposed to make you want to long for God, that one day a king will come and actually restore peace in your life, in your life. Restore everything that is wrong. He will one day undo it. The hands of the king, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, the hands of the king are healing hands. One day the king will come and undo everything that has gone wrong. He says, you right now are a pilot of that. You know what that means? You are a plant of that. You are a foretaste of that. You are an imperfect but real view. You are an imperfect but evidential example of what that future city is going to look like. That means you can have that peace, a glimpse of that today. You can have real joy today. You have come to the city of the living God. You know what that means? That means that you're a citizen of heaven on earth. You are a citizen of heaven on earth. That means that you have the rights of citizens in heaven. That means that you follow the laws of citizens in heaven. That means that you have gifts of people in the city, but not just any city, a broken city like ours. you You have the gifts of people who live in a perfect city. You have the skills. That means one day we'll all have careers in heaven. We're all going to still work in heaven. After you die, you think you're just going to kind of lie around. You're actually, you do that now, and you can only take that for a few days. In heaven, we're all going to have careers, but it's going to be perfect. You're going to do exactly what you have been born to do, and you're going to do it perfectly. That's just a glimpse of that here on earth, you see. That means you're going to have meaning in heaven. You can taste that life to a degree right now. It's imperfect, but you can taste what real joy is like. You can taste what real peace is like. You can taste what real courage looks like. You can taste what real perseverance looks like. You can taste what it's like to be sure, to have certainty in life. You can have real joy. 
The writer goes on. He says, you have come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What is that? Anytime you see angels in the Old Testament, anytime you see angels anywhere in the New Testament, that's the presence of God. It represents the royal presence of God. The intimacy that we have. God has called us, and there's this joining. There's this coming together. For example, in the book of the Bible, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you have Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was God's dwelling place, right? The Garden of Eden is where God walked with Adam, you see? But when Adam and Eve chose to live life according to their own rules, when they chose to follow what they trusted, what they wanted, their own desires, above what God wanted for them, they were cast out of God's presence. Because basically, it's not because God has rejected them. Really, they rejected God first, and God was letting them live according to what they wanted. So they were cast out of God's presence, and what did God place there at the entrance? An angel with a sword, a flaming sword meaning you can't come back in to God's presence, you see? That's what that means. The angels guarding the presence of God. When Jacob, later on in the book of uh, Genesis, Jacob, he's penniless, he's friendless, he's defenseless, he's running from his family, running from death, certain death. He's in the middle of the wilderness. He's got nothing but a pillow. He's got no pillow. He's got nothing but a rock to be used as a pillow to rest his head, which means he has absolutely nothing. He has this dream, and that dream is of a stairwell that leads to heaven. And what does he see there? Angels ascending and descending. Why? Because that's the royal presence of God, and that's where the angels are. This author says that you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, saw the seraphs, saw the angels above the throne of God. It was a symbol of his presence. He fell down. He quaked. In spite of the Mount Sinai experience, when these people start to draw near the presence of God, there was a quaking, there was a trauma. The author says, you have not come to that. You have come to a place of infinite joy. Thousands and thousands of angels gathered in joyful assembly For all eternity, you have the angels, and what are they doing? They're serving God. They're centering their lives around God. They're praising God. They're adoring God. They're celebrating the presence of God in their lives. They're celebrating each other, celebrating the presence of God in their lives. They're glorifying God. They're built for that. They're built for worship. He says, you are built for that. You are built for worship, and one day, you will be there praising and glorifying God and serving and loving and adoring one another. That's what you're going to be doing. Now, to kind of bring that home a little bit, because we used to, I used to think that growing up, that meant that we're just going to sit in like a church service for thousands and thousands of years and just sing and hear someone preach for like a thousand years. And, you know, that's what I used to think that it meant, but that's not what it means. I mean, that does not sound very heavenly, right, to us, Right. Think about this. When you go to a restaurant, when you go to a restaurant and the food is just perfect, what do you do? You can't help it. You just go, mm, this is just, mm, this is good. You got to try this, right? And then when you go back home, you go, you, you tweet on the spot, right? I don't really use that Twitter anymore too much, but, you know, Facebook, you take a picture of your meal, right? And you say, you know, this is like what heaven tastes like, right? You say that, right? Uh, when, you, uh, when you meet somebody and they're very interesting to you, what do you do? You call up your friends 
And you say, I just met the perfect person. Right? You praise them. You glorify them. Because we're built, humankind is built in such a way, we're built to worship that which is beautiful, that which is brilliant, that which deserves praise. When you listen to that song, some of you are, are great classical musicians. When you listen to that piece, now I don't have a trained ear. I took a few classes in college, and I could tell the difference between certain pieces. So if you're a classically trained musician, you definitely know the difference between a very well-performed piece and something that is not as well-performed. But when you hear that perfect piece, you have to share it. You have to share it, you see. When you watch that movie that you just thought was just groundbreaking, right? For me, it was in college. I watched Pulp Fiction for the first time. I just thought it was the most amazing movie I, I saw that movie four or five more times in the theater, but I had to take people with me to see it. You see? Why do we do that? Because you have to praise. We're built to praise. You can't enjoy something to the degree that it's intended to be enjoyed unless you praise it. That's how you do it. That's why it's not just you and the angels by yourself. That's not what the text says. It's in joyful assembly. You have to do it together. That means that someday you who are doing exactly what you're designed to do in heaven, you're going, to be, you're going to be in the perfect job with the perfect boss, like if you have bosses out there, right? Doing exactly what you were designed to do and you're doing it perfectly. And you know what you're going to be doing? You're going to be sharing it with other people. And they're going to praise it. And they're going to praise you for doing it. And that, God's going to look at that because it's all built around him because there's no sin God is glorified by that. That's heaven. That's heaven. Joyful assembly. You see, that's what it is. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they knew what absolute, infinite, cosmic joy looked like. They defined it. They knew what absolute, cosmic fellowship intimacy is like where one person is constantly submitting to the other the father is submitting to the son the son is submitting to the holy spirit the holy spirit is submitting to the father the holy spirit is submitting to the son and they're just constantly loving and adoring and praising and glorifying and serving each other for all eternity that is heaven and if god who is community by nature he's a triune god by nature By nature, he didn't come together as community. By nature, he is community. If he already had fellowship and intimacy and joy in his life, he clearly didn't create us because he lacked it, because he needed it, because he was insecure, because he was afraid he was going to lose it. He clearly did not. He created us because he wanted to spread it, because he wanted to share it. He wanted to open it up. He said, let us, let us make man in our image. They are going to be designed to be just like us, to share and serve and glorify and praise and adore just like us. He didn't do it to get it, but to give it, you see. All by sheer grace. We were just created to be a part of that. Psalm 19 says every part of creation out there is doing it. The birds, what do you think they're singing about? When dogs bark, what do you think they're barking about? You were created to be like that. George Whitfield, 
not quoting it quite, quite right, George Whitfield, he's actually had a big hand in for, the formulation of the University of Pennsylvania, I believe. George Whitfield, an Anglican minister, I believe, said that when you walk by and you hear the dogs growling at you, they're growling at you because they know that you had something to do with the brokenness of the universe. That you are not, you are out of sync with them. That's why they growl. That's why there's a distance between you and even the animals. That's what he said. The rest of the universe understands joyful assembly. The stars in the sky, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The stars know what they're meant to do, but we don't. We don't get that joyful assembly. We rejected it. We neglected it. We ignored it. We walked away from it. We were cast out from it, you see. Every part of creation stands before God, glorifies, serves, adores God. That's what we've been built for. Nothing else will satisfy you because you've been built for that. And everything else in the world knows that we've been built for that. The rest of the universe gets it. But, you know, we, we followed a lie. In Genesis, in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve followed a lie, a deception. What's the lie? This is the lie. When Satan was tempting Eve to take of the fruit, Really what he was saying, because, you know, God said, don't eat of this fruit. Don't take of this fruit, right? You will, you will die. And uh, Satan said, but did God really say that? He instills a lie. He instills the doubt. Because what Satan was trying to get us to understand in this lie is that if you live for God's will, don't you get it? Right now, if you live according to God's law, if you do, if you obey God, if you live for God's will, if you live for God's glory instead of your own will, instead of your own happiness, instead of your own glory, you will never be happy. You want to be really happy? You've got to walk away from this. Pursue it on your own. Get it on your own. And as a result, we're still warring with God for control of our lives. That's sin. That's what sin does. We're constantly warring with God. Right now in your heart, there is a battle with God for control over your life. You want to build your own throne, and you're miserable doing it. You're miserable doing it. But the author says here, but you have come to this. You have a taste of this. You have a glimpse of this. You have, a, you have a glimpse of the joy and the fellowship and the intimacy and the peace. And you have a sense of what it's like to be in God's presence. You can center life around that. It's just a glimpse. You can center enough for you to center your life around it. One day, you'll be brought in physically in full. Then he says, you have come to the church of the firstborn. So he says, you come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. He says, you've come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's remarkable. You know why? Because in ancient times, the firstborn, the meaning of the firstborn was very deep. It was an agrarian culture. They had no banks back then. So your wealth was centered around how many children, how many sons you had because they can work the land and how many crops you could produce, how much land you had, Right? And so having, firstborn children, having a firstborn son was very important because you would center all of your savings, your entire owning, everything that you had, that inheritance would go to the firstborn son. 
That meant that the firstborn, just by nature of being the firstborn, he just received it. He didn't do anything to earn it. He was just born first. He just got it. It was all by grace. And so he didn't just get that. That meant the wealth, the inheritance, the glory, the decision-making, the status, the love, the doting, the protection. You couldn't let any harm come to that son. And he just received it just by grace. You know what that means? This is the end. He says, you have come to the church of the firstborn. All of us are firstborn sons. That's amazing because in those days, in those days, you know he doesn't say, you have come to the church of the firstborn children. That had no meaning back then. You have come to the church of the firstborn sons and daughters. That had no meaning back then. If you were a daughter, if you were a woman back then, in ancient times, women had no rights. It didn't, mean, it didn't matter to be called a woman, to be called a daughter. He says, in this world, even daughters are sons. Even daughters are firstborn sons. You can go even lower. Even widows are firstborn sons. Even orphan daughters who are widowed are firstborn sons in the church. That's what he's saying. Your names are written in heaven. That's remarkable. This is the end of proving yourself. That's what that means. Basically, it's all that so that Hebrews are can say, so stop trying to prove yourselves. You don't have to prove yourselves anymore. Your names are written in heaven. It's down. It's written in stone. It's cut in stone. You get it? He says, you have the status. You have the love. God is doting on you. God is loving you. That's what he says. And you just receive it. This is the end of comparisons. This is the end of looking to your right and left and comparing yourself to other people. This is the end of, of snobbiness. This is the end of jealousy. Your names are written in heaven. This is the end of working for your own identity because you have a new identity. Instead of working for, for wealth and for status and power, the text says you have come to the church of the firstborn. That means you have the inheritance. You have the status. You have the power. You have the decision-making authority. It is, that's who you are. You've come to the church of the firstborn. Everyone here is firstborn. That means the wealth and the power and the love and the glory and the inheritance is guaranteed. You have a new identity. That means you can be the last child born in a poor, terrible family with no earthly claim of any future. You can be poor, uneducated, morally outcast and still be firstborn in the kingdom of God. You don't have to prove yourself. Jesus says, I don't want you to get a name like that. I, want you, I don't want you to become a somebody on your own because it's not going to last. Over and over, Jesus teaches us that if you rely on your accomplishments or your salary or your looks or your intelligence, that's the end of you. And you want to know why? It's because you're not always going to look good. You're not always going to look good. Right now, you're young, you're beautiful. Everyone here is young and beautiful, but you're not always going to be young and beautiful. You're not. You're not always going to be on top. You're not. You know what your career is? Take it from a working man. 18 years in his career, okay? Every year, your company is going to look for bright, young, intelligent people who are well-dressed and sharp and beautiful-looking, and they're going to pay you cheap at first. They're going to pay you cheap to work long hours. That's how they get you, 
okay? Because everyone has to start somewhere. And so what do you have to do? You have to prove yourself. You're just going to start working. And if you prove yourself a little bit, then you start to rise. And they're going to give you a little bit more to keep you there, keep you satisfied, or you're going to jump to another place that's going to give you even more than that just to keep you satisfied. But it's also going to come with an increase of pressure. There's going to be more pressure. And so the pressure is going to wear down on you. Not to mention there's lots of other pressures in your life, right? But this career of yours, they're just going to pressure you and give you more to compensate and pressure you and give you more. And, and there are going to be times when it's like a pressure cooker. You're going to be pulling long hours, sacrificing family and relationships and holidays. And then they're going to chew you up and chew you up and chew you up until one day you're too old. You're just too old. You're not going to be at the top any longer. You're going to actually have to fight younger people who are more motivated to stay on top until one day you're gone and some younger, hungrier guy is going to take your place. Welcome to the life post-college. The Bible is constantly saying, you, that's why you, I don't want you to get a sense of becoming a somebody like that. And on top of that, there's no way of really knowing. If you build your identity on, on your career, there's no way of knowing who you really are. You know why? Because if you build it on your career, when you're good, you're good. That's your identity. And when you're bad, then what are you? When you suck, where are you? Who are you? It's constantly changing. It's constantly changing. Um, unless the gospel goes deep, your self-esteem is really just going to be a product of what everybody else around you says who you are. Your self-esteem is going to be built, or your identity is going to be built on just what everybody else's view of you. Your parents, your grandparents, your neighbors, your coworkers, your bosses, your superiors, right? The people you're intimate with in your life, your spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, or your closest friends. You're just going to be a kind of a sum, a product of all that. And that's really hard because some of the stuff that people say about you are really true. And that's hard, but it's true. You don't want to believe it, but it's true. And some of the stuff that people say about you is false. But that's hard because it's not true, right? And then some of the stuff you hope is false is true, and that's really hard. So who are you really? Who really are you? Because what people say about you is sometimes conflicting, and what people say about you is always changing. So you never know who you really are. You have nothing to stand on. Some of you are living out the guilty verdict that other people have passed onto you. And it's probably based on things that happened years ago. And you, can, you just can't escape it. You're just labeled as a certain type of person. You see that? This truth, that your name is written in heaven, it overturns that. That's a new reputation, you see? That's a new identity. Some of you laying out your popularity that you have right now, you're just clinging on to, you're just holding on to that popularity, holding on to that approval. You're holding on to the last remnants of your beauty and your self-esteem has been built around that and it's happened. It began years ago and you're just clinging on to it and it's made you insecure and now you're trapped. And so unless you live a certain way, you can't escape. Some of you are living out wounds, suffered, because you have a poor self-image and it's been built up over years and years of criticism and abuses in your life. You know what the gospel says here? You have come to a foundation that is unshakable. You have come to a city 
that is unshakable. That means you have unshakable fellowship, unshakable identity, unshakable joy in your life. That's what the author is saying. You've not come to this, but you've come to this. Do you believe it? How do you come to it? I'm going to go real quickly here, okay? How do you get it? See, by the middle of the second paragraph in this text, look at all the blessings. You've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, city of the living God, and I don't want to be trite about it. Thousands upon thousands of angels in the presence of God, joyful assembly, church of the firstborn, your names are written in heaven. And then he says, you've come to God the judge. Now, what's so great about that? You've come to God the judge, huh? All these other things, I can visibly see how they're good things. Why is it good to, have, to come to God who is the judge of all the earth and to have him give me unshakable joy and unshakable identity? You have to think about this. In verses 18 to 21, why does that mountain shake? Why does Moses tremble in fear? It's because of our sin. It's because of our ju- the judgment that we deserve. Because of our sin. We can't stand in the presence of God because of our sin. God comes down. When he comes down, he is a shaker. He rattles everything around. And unless you are standing on something that is unshakable, you will shake to the core. And that's why Moses is trembling. That's why everybody says, that's why even an animal touches it. He says, you have to kill that animal. When God comes, he is the shaker. He is the shaker of all the earth. And everything trembles beneath him, you see. How do you stand? And the answer, he says, you've come to God, the judge, to Jesus Christ, to Jesus, the mediator, the mediator of this new covenant. On the cross, what do you see? There was darkness. Darkness covered the land. There was gloom. There was a storm. And Jesus Christ on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew chapter 27, he sees, when he cried out, he gave up that spirit, gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. In other words, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, there was darkness, there was gloom, there was storm, there was an earthquake. In other words, there was a shaking, there was a quaking. Right? There was a quaking. And everything fell apart. The temple fell apart. The rocks fell apart. Moses was terrified just at the idea of being consumed. Jesus Christ, he experiencing at that moment the full wrath of the penalty of God. The full wrath of God. He was experiencing the full wrath of the uh, the penalty of our sins, the judgment, and he was absolutely consumed. He's saying, right now, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have been cast out of your presence your royal presence, there's no longer any intimacy. I've been forsaken. No more intimacy. I am shaken. There's no justice. There's no shalom. There's no peace in my life. I'm just shaking. I'm just quaking right now. Every other religion says, here are the rules. You've got to follow the rules. Then you can see God. You've got to live up to the rules. But who can do that? Who can truly live up to all the rules? Any of these rules, who can live up to it? And so we're desperate to try because if you succeed, if you can succeed at the rules, you feel good. But if you fail, what do you experience? You experience the darkness and the gloom and the storm 
and the distancing, the forsakenness of God. You feel that sometimes when you can't live up to the rules, right? And you're just experiencing a taste, just a mere taste of that. But here, what is it saying? The judge of all men, the judge of all the earth came down not to give judgment, but to bear that judgment, to experience the judgment. The shaker came and was shaken up so that you, you know what a shaking is? You know what a shaking is? It's a dismantling, a violent disintegration, right? A human being, integrated person, right? But when you're shaken up, if you're a chemistry major, you understand this, right? It's the vibration, the violence to the vibration that breaks apart molecules. There's a dismantling. That's what shaking does. The rocks split, the earth quaked, the holy temple curtain torn top to bottom, right? There was a shaking. There was a dismantling. Jesus was disintegrated on the cross, not just physically, he was, I mean, blood just pouring out. He was disintegrated from his father. And that's the true disintegration. That's the ultimate falling apart. That's the ultimate separation, the ultimate shaking. Why? So that you would be unshakable. So you would be unshakable. He was shaken. The Holy Temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. It doesn't say it was torn from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom. It was bottom to top. That means somebody at the bottom, you and I, would have to stand and rip apart the curtain. It says it was torn from top to bottom as if God himself was tearing the curtain apart at its seams from top to bottom. You get that? So you can have access. There's your intimacy. There's the love. You want proof that God loves you? You want proof that you can come to God no matter where you are, where you've been, what you've done, who you are. You want proof that you you can stand on an unshakable foundation and right now get a mere taste of the joy and the intimacy and the peace. You want proof of that? Look at the cross. The cross shows us. He, the judge of all men, shaken to the core, shaken apart from his father so you can have the father. Shaken apart, no peace so that you can have peace. Shaken apart so you could be unshakable. Dismantled, disintegrated. Why? So that you could be reconciled to God. That's the access that we need. That's the intimacy that we need. That's the meaning and the purpose that we need. Everything else that we're pursuing pales in comparison to that real thing. The reason why we're pursuing all those other things is because we just want a taste. We just want a fix. We think it's the real thing, but it's just a shadow of the real thing that is found in Christ. We can have his presence. That's Mount Zion. We can have his peace. That's Jerusalem, right? We can have meaning and purpose. That's what it means to live in a city. We can have fellowship. That's a joyful assembly. We can have an identity, that's being the firstborn. We can have security. To be a judge means that there is justice, which means we have security, you see. That's why you have to come to God who is the judge because that means there's justice, perfect justice. That means if you've ever been wronged in your life, one day you'll be satisfied because justice would have been served. Evil, all evil will be put down great hymn, no fear in life, right? No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. You have come to this. Have you come to this? Let's pray.